Welcome to the podcast for Sunday, September 24th, 2017. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It was my uh, freshman year of college at the University of Hawaii in Manoa. My family lived on uh, the island of Hawaii, also known as the Big Island. Uh, But I was living in a college dorm in Honolulu. I was paying for my own tuition. This was the mid-80s, so uh, for a Hawaii resident, in-state tuition was $555 a semester. Uh, And I was paying for myself, plus room and board. So I need a little extra money. Uh, in order to uh, make things work in addition to attending classes. So looked through the want ads, found something, got on my bike, rode about two miles from campus over to the location, totally nailed the interview, got hired on the spot. I would start the next day the newest employee of Hawaii Vinyl Supply. Yeah. See, vinyl siding was all the rage back in the 80s, and with the harsh Hawaiian sun and the damaging salt water in the air, exterior paint on homes in Hawaii never stood a chance. Vinyl siding could protect your home from extreme weather. Who wouldn't want a product that was 100% guaranteed? Who wouldn't want to buy that for their homes? Turns out a lot of people that I called uh, didn't want to have that for their homes. Uh, my job was a telemarketer, my very first college job, telemarketer. Only I didn't really look like this uh, because we didn't, we didn't have computers back in the mid-80s and we didn't have headsets. Um, I look more like this, uh, just change the gender and that, that would be me. So every day I would ride my bike uh, over to the telemarketing office around supper time. Did you know that at dinner time it's the best time to catch people at home? Who would have thought, Right. And then I would grab my call sheet, and I would just start dialing, yeah? Hello, Mr. Tanaka. Yes, this is Jim White from Hawaii Vinyl Supply. We're working on a home in your neighborhood. Do you know who the Ogawas are over there on 7th Street? Well, we're installing vinyl siding on their house, and I was wondering if you would like a free, let me say it again, free estimate on how to keep from having to repaint your home every couple of years. You see, all I had to do was get them to an agree to an appointment for a free estimate from one of the salespeople from Hawaii Vinyl Supply, and they would come over and make the presentation. I got paid by the hour, and I received a bonus for every appointment I make, and then I got another bonus uh, for every homeowner that actually purchased vinyl signing that came through my recommendations. And, well, that's at least how it was supposed to work. Um, It turns out... I never actually made a sale nor actually made an appointment for them to go to. So I don't know how those benefits would work. I just realized I was a horrible salesperson. But every day I would bike to work. I would be hoping maybe this is the day that I would get my first appointment that would lead to a sale. And every day it never was. Uh, Every day I felt like my boss, as nice as he was, was, you know, expecting more from me uh, that I would actually make an appointment for one of the salespeople. And every day, I realized I just couldn't deliver what it was that they were looking for. And so about three weeks into my appointment, surprise, surprise, I was let go. Like, I totally saw it coming. Uh, But I tell you this because John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, I think he would have connected and related to me and my feelings of frustration. You see, he also had a job that he was doing, and he felt like 
he wasn't doing enough. Like his boss expected more of him, and it drove him crazy. Welcome to the final week of our installment in the series, Christianity's Family Tree, What Other Christians Believe and Why. Eight weeks ago, we began this journey to look at our sister denominations and try to figure out what it is that made the Christian church change over the years, how we got to where we were, and what are some of the basic elements of Christianity that we can learn from our fellow brothers and sisters. So we began with the Orthodox and then the Roman Catholic churches. It was followed by the Lutherans, the Presbyterians, and the Anglicans as we went through the Protestant Reformation. We spent time with the Baptists and the Pentecostals. And now today we finish that journey with the denomination with which we are a part of, United Methodism. I say this every week, but I'm grateful to Pastor Adam Hamilton, whose study guide on the same topic has been uh, helpful in helping me prepare each week. When we spoke about Anglicanism, 17th century England was trying to forge a pathway between Catholicism and the burgeoning Protestant Reformation. And so the Church of England was born out of this dilemma. That was the church that John Wesley grew up in. But it needs to be said that John Wesley never intentionally uh, wanted to start a new denomination. He never wanted to break away from the Church of England. He wanted to be uh, the yeast that, that made the whole church rise, the salt and the light. Uh, he wanted to work from reform from within the church to bring back vitality, passion, and holiness. John Wesley was born on June 17, 1703. Get ready, women. He was the 15 of 19 children to Susanna and Samuel Wesley. Nine of the infants, uh, nine of the brothers and sisters never made it past their infancy. Wesley's grandfathers had been dissenters or what was called nonconformists. They were terms that were used to describe those who were dissatisfied with the Church of England and felt like there was another way, so they made their own um, churches. John's father, Samuel, became a priest, not in the nonconformist church, but within the established church, the Church of England. And then John and his brother Charles followed in their father's footsteps, and they also became Anglican priests. Early on in his ministry, John felt a passion for God and and for a more rigorous faith that he saw among many of his peers. And at age 22, in 1725, he wrote that he desired no longer to be just a nominal Christian, but he wanted to be a real Christian. When his younger brother Charles was going through college, John began to meet with him and a group of his friends uh, who who desired a more rigorous faith, that wanted to to live out what they saw in in the early church in Acts chapter 2. And so they worshiped together, they reached out to the the needy in the community, and this uh, methodical approach to the pursuit of holiness earned them the nickname Methodists among their critics. And originally it was set up as a term of derision, but it stuck. In the early years, John's own faith leaned more towards the intellect, though he had a a deep yearning to experience assurance of his salvation. At the age of 35, after a a failed uh, mission trip to America, Wesley became increasingly aware of his own lack of faith. And in fact, today we might say he was probably clinically depressed at this time in his life. He felt like, despite being an ordained priest, that God demanded more from him, that he wasn't doing enough. He wasn't even sure that God loved him because of his efforts, if you can believe that. And then in 1738, Wesley had what he considered to be a profound religious conversion experience. He was listening to the words of Martin Luther being read, words that were reflecting uh, on the teaching of being justified by faith, not by works. 
And in that moment, everything changed. He wrote this in his journal. I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. I mean, he knew it here, right, for so long. He was preaching it from here, but he didn't feel it here until that day on Aldersgate Street. And from then on, everything changed for John. He suddenly had a newfound vigor and passion for doing what he had always done before as a Christian. But now, instead of doing it because he felt like he had to, because God was demanding it from him, now he was doing it as a joyous response to God's love and grace in his life. To this day, United Methodists see themselves as people who bring together both a reasonable faith that is intellectually satisfying and a passionate and emotionally compelling faith that touches the heart. Wesley had a friend, George Whitfield, and he asked him something crazy, Wesley thought. Why don't you come and preach outside instead of in a church? And, and, and John Wesley initially refused. This was improper. This was distasteful. Uh, it just wasn't done. But then in April of 1739, after much more cajoling by his friend George, he finally relented and he agreed to preach outdoors. And he was shocked. He was shocked at how many people started coming, people that wouldn't normally come to the local church on Sunday morning, and people listened to him, and they, their lives are being changed, and they loved it. And, and so from that moment on, he would preach wherever people would gather, in cemeteries, uh, in, in, in outside of uh, mines where people were working. Uh, he preached over 250,000 miles around England and the British Isles, calling people to follow Jesus Christ. He said, the world is now my parish. Now, I mentioned that John Wesley never intended to start a new church. He wanted Methodists to be a renewal movement within the Church of England. And he wasn't the kind of traveling evangelist that was uh, keeping tabs. Like, here's, I've been to this many cities, and this many people have given their life to Christ, and then move on to the next one. No, he wanted people, once they made that commitment, to actually be able to live out their faith, to be encouraged by one another, to grow, to become more and more like Jesus. And so he put people together into societies. Uh, Those are usually gathered around the, the towns that his revivals were in. Uh, These groups would meet during the week to encourage one another in their faith. And anyone was welcome to join. And they had these three general rules of being a Methodist. First, avoid doing what you know is wrong. Second, do all the good you can to as many people as you can. And third, stay in love with God. Do those things that draw you closer to God. The spiritual disciplines of prayer and worship and Bible reading and fasting. Avoid doing what is wrong. Do good, stay in love with God. In fact, when I was ordained as a pastor uh, in the United Methodist Church, uh, I, had to, I was charged to uphold these three general rules, uh, even today among Methodists. Well, as Methodists grew and developed in England, and later as it spread across the ocean into the colonies in America, there were some distinguishing characteristics that Methodists became known for. First was passionate and relevant preaching. Starting with John Wesley and then all the way down to the lay and ordained preachers, Methodists have been known for good preaching that changes people's lives. Wherever Methodists gather for worship, others came to experience that too. Camp meetings and revivals and local Sunday mornings, people invited their friends, you've got to come and hear this message, it'll touch your heart. Second, Wesley knew that it simply wasn't enough to hear and respond to the gospel proclaimed, that you have to connect with others. You have to be a part of a community. 
And so 18th century Methodists banded together and they encouraged one another to support their faith. They were together in small groups, even smaller than their societies. Eight to 12 people were in what's called a class. People who uh, encouraged one another and prayed for one another and supported one another through all the ups and the downs. Because we are, at our core as Methodists, people created to be in community. And you may think, especially over the last couple months when you heard Karen talking about all the different small groups that we wanted you to be a part of, it may seem like we're pushing small groups. We're not pushing small groups. We're recognizing that that's where life change happens, even more than just coming on Sunday morning. And so we want all of our members to be connected with others uh, throughout the month. Third, Methodists love to sing. John's brother Charles was a prolific hymn writer. Uh, He penned such classics as Oh for a Thousand Tongues to Sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and Love Divine, All Loves Excelling. In fact, it's even said that the early Methodists would take popular drinking songs from the bars and taverns and then uh, just throw out the words and put in new words to the tunes that everyone's already humming through the rest of the week, right? It's a good way of helping quality music to stick into the hearts of people. We Methodists have always expressed our faith through song. And then finally, Methodists has been known as social reformers. Wesley believed that Jesus called the church, not just to come on Sunday morning, but to transform society. And so John and the early Methodists helped start orphanages, soup kitchens, hospitals, and schools. He spoke out against slavery. This is in the 1700s. He called for prison reform. He included women in aspects of leadership of significance in the movement. That's why I think it was important that we recognized uh, Freedom Sunday today to help make people more aware of the dangers of modern-day slavery. And our social justice team here at, at Palmdale Church is active in making, helping make the Antelope Valley a safer place for all of God's children. As Methodists sought to live out their faith and discern what it was that God was calling them to do in their lives, they developed a simple tool. And I think it works even today. It's a way of looking at any issue or decision or aspect in one's life. If you want to try to figure out what is God's will for my life in this area, here's what the Methodists did. They called it Wesley's Quadrilateral. And it starts with Scripture. Scripture is where we have to go uh, as the first place of reference for our faith. This is the big gray circle that holds everything together. The Bible is the starting point for any question, decision, or issue that might arise in one's faith. And then we look at tradition. That's the pink circle on the right. Specifically, the tradition of the church. What have other Christians over the centuries said? What have they taught? How has the church uh, formed uh, stances and and, uh, opinions on moral issues of their day? But then we don't stop there. We also include reason and our God-given intellect to help us think through a situation. Back in 1992, authors Josh McDowell and Bob Hostetler wrote a book for teens called Don't Check Your Brains at the Door. It's a great title for United Methodists, right? That God gave us brains and an education so that we might use it, especially when it comes to issues of faith. But we cannot neglect experience and the ways that we and others have come to encounter God's truth and life in our lives. We each have walked our own uh, spiritual pathways through life. We've had experiences and seasons that have helped shape who and what we are. Now, not all of them felt like good things while we're going through them. But I believe what Paul says in Romans 8, that God can take anything that happens in our life and turn it into something good for us and for the world around us. And so our experiences are also what help shape our understanding of what it is that God might be saying 
But remember, we need all four of these, scripture, tradition, reason, and experience, to help us discern how it is that God is calling us to live out our faith. Now, the United Methodist Church is not a creedal church. That means if you want to join the church, you don't have to stand up and say, I believe in this, 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 and this. I reject that, 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 and that. No. Uh, In fact, this is, I think, one of the aspects of United Methodism that is so appealing to many. And this is the wide diversity of beliefs that can be held by our members. And you and I may not agree on every issue of faith or morality, but that's okay. John Wesley said this, in the essentials, we must have unity. Now, the essentials for United Methodists and many other Christians are this. God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the centrality of Scripture. That's it. We believe in God, that Jesus is the Son of God, the Holy Spirit is God's presence with us on earth, and that Scripture should be center in our lives. And then Wesley said, in the non-essentials, liberty. That means a freedom of differing beliefs outside of the essentials. Whether it's immigration, abortion, baptism, homosexuality, or any other number of issues, United Methodists have the freedom to differ in our understandings. And I don't think by calling them non-essentials lessens their value or importance. It just helps us remember they're not the most important aspects of our faith. That's reserved for God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and Scripture as the center of our lives. And even if someone says, well, Pastor Jim, the Bible says... Whatever, 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 that's true. But we, United Methodists, remember, we use our tradition, reason, and experience to also help shape our understanding of what the Scripture says and what God is trying to lead us to do out of the life-giving words of the Bible. But here's the crucial part. John Wesley said, in all things, we must have charity or love. We must do everything in a spirit of love and grace, especially when it comes to the hot-button topics that I just mentioned. Because we get all flustered and riled up and we start discussing and debating uh, those type of issues with one another. But if we do so with a spirit of love and grace, it's okay. We may differ in understanding, and that's okay. We don't have to leave the church because we may disagree about these topics. That's what it means to be held together by the Holy Spirit as part of the United Methodist Church. Bishop Scott Jones, who serves in the southeast jurisdiction, actually in the Houston area right now, refers to Methodism as the extreme center. And let's listen to how he describes where our church has stood over time. Extreme center means that the United Methodist Church, at its best, is conservative in some areas, very liberal in other areas. We don't fit a stereotype very well. For example, some denominations emphasize evangelism. They know well how to help nominally religious and non-religious people enter into the Christian life. Well, that's partial gospel, but it's part of what we believe as United Methodists. At the same time, other denominations emphasize holiness or sanctification. They're all about social justice ministries. They want to get people helping the poor. They want to get people engaged with the current social issues, however they define them. But... They're not very good at helping nominally religious and non-religious people enter into the Christian life. Well, that's only part of the gospel. By the extreme center, I mean that we're holding on to a position theologically that balances, or not even balances, that embraces both of these polarities, both of these extreme positions, and we see how each side needs the other. Before we close, let me lift up one last era of theology that has been central to United Methodists, and that's the issue of grace. We all know the song Amazing Grace, right? It's probably, if not one of the most, the most uh, popular song in all of Christianity. 
John Wesley was adamant about Methodists being soaked in grace. And he said there's, there's really three different kinds of grace that we experience over the course of our lives. It begins with prevenient grace. This is that divine love that surrounds all of humanity, that, that precedes us and that goes before any of our uh, conscious impulses. So even before we think, you know what, maybe we should start going to church. Or, I wonder if there's a God in this world that knows me and cares about me. Even before we make any attempt to reach out to God, God is already reaching out to us, trying to draw us in by God's grace. Wesley said, prevenient grace is the grace that comes before, even before we're aware of what God is doing in our lives. And the amazing part of this grace is that it's there for everybody. Nobody is outside the scope of God's prevenient grace. The question is, are we going to respond to it or are we going to ignore it? And prevenient grace prepares us to receive God's forgiveness and what comes after, which is justifying grace. That's the moment that we believe in Jesus and give our hearts to God for the first time. This is when we freely accept the love of God and forgiveness from our sins. Everything from our past has been erased, and we are made to be new creations in Christ Jesus. Our scripture reading today from Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. It can happen all at once, like you can have a conversion experience, and you remember that moment that you gave your life to Jesus, or more like me, I grew up in a family and a church that told me all about God's love, and over time, I grew to realize, yeah, this is exactly what I believe, and I want to affirm that in my own life. But the rest of our lives, we are given God's sanctifying grace. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in and through us. Uh, to help us become more and more like Jesus. Not that we'll ever be Jesus or perfect like Jesus, of course, but that we grow in our knowledge and love of God and in our love for our fellow human beings. John Wesley called it holiness of heart and life. He said it's, you know, living out what we actually believe. Again, Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are what God has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. None of us should stop striving to grow in our faith and discipleship as we follow Jesus. And hopefully all of us will get to that point where love becomes the center of our lives and everything that we say and do. Not because we have to. That's what Wesley struggled with early. All the things that I feel like God is saying I have to be doing and it just becomes this overwhelming burden. No, but as a response to look at all the love and grace that God has already given you, how can you not share that with others? Now, I know I've only become to just scratch the surface of what it means to be United Methodists and to have our heritage, uh, but, uh, but as we begin to close the series, I've mentioned Pastor Adam Hamilton many times. I thought it'd be nice to give you a chance to hear him speak a little bit. I've shown you each week the chart of you know, how each church thinks about uh, Christian history and how each one is trying to find that we're the right ones on the pathway. Uh, Adam does a wonderful job of showing how United Methodists view history and also how it all fits together. Let's watch. And, uh, and you see the Methodists, and of course we feel like we also are trying to reclaim early New Testament Christianity. And we came out of the Anglican Church, and the Pentecostals came out of us, and the Anglicans came out of the Catholic Church, and the Lutherans and Presbyterians and Baptists came out of the Anglican Church, and there's the Orthodox all by themselves down there. And all of us thinking that we're doing the right thing, and, and we've got the best picture of the gospel. 
And some of you ask me, well, where's my denomination fit in? I mean, you didn't even talk about my denomination. Of course, there's thousands of denominations, and all of the denominations spring from one of these eight denominations. So every denomination in the world comes from one of these eight. Let's take a look at what happens when we add some of the rest of them on here. The chart begins to look just a bit messy. Don't you think God has to just laugh at this sometimes? Just to look at this and, and have a sense of humor to even put up with all this. But I began to look at this and I began to say, what would happen if you took this and you turned it up on end? And I began to wonder, is it possible that the body of Christ isn't a whole bunch of competing truth claims, but is really a tree? And maybe God sees it this way. And, and when you begin to see the body of Christ as a tree... Several things you began to realize. How silly would it be if you cut off all the rest of those branches and there was just one branch there? And that one branch said, you know what, we're the whole tree. <laughs> How sad would that be? But the beauty of the tree is all of its branches. And I want you to notice this. I want you to notice that it all shares, every one of those branches share the same trunk and the same roots. Our roots are in Judaism. Our trunk is Jesus Christ. The sap that, that feeds the leaves is the Holy Spirit that permeates the entire body of Christ. And when you can look at it this way, you can begin to say how grateful we are for the body of Christ. I, have I hope that God has used this series to not only make you better informed about what other Christians believe and how we've gotten to this point, but also to inspire you to greater depths of faith in your own journey. We have a tremendous heritage, my brothers and sisters, not only as United Methodists, including the Evangelicals and the United Brethren that merged with the Methodists in 1968 to become United Methodists, but in all of Christianity. Hundreds upon thousands upon millions of Christians have gone before us, blazing the way for where the church is today. And, and I know Christianity is not a perfect religion. Far from it. In fact, there are many things that the church needs to repent from over the years. But there's also a lot that we can learn from one another. We should not be in the business of competing or comparing ourselves with other Christians. We need to be about the business of following Jesus with all of our heart and soul and strength and mind and loving our neighbors as ourselves. May it be so by the grace of God. Amen.